I'm Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Daniel Bartal, Professor Emeritus at the School of Education, Tel Aviv University. Daniel has directed most of his attention to the study of the socio-psychological foundation of intractable conflicts and peace-building, including reconciliation. Throughout his long academic career, he developed theoretical frameworks for concepts like siege mentality, intractable conflict, security, collective emotional orientation, and much more. He retired in 2015 and decided to devote his second career to political activism. He founded a peace movement called Save Israel, Stop the Occupation, with the goal to struggle for ending the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and establishing the Palestinian state. You can find his full bio on the page for the episode. So first of all, thank you so much for coming. I know you just arrived yesterday uh, from, from all the way from Israel. All the way, yes, and I thank uh, you. Yeah, no, I can't tell you how delighted I am because when I was writing about the psychological aspect or dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, obviously I had to do my research. And see, our name came first. <laughs> and so I was talking to a husband of my niece, David Rabinovich. I don't know if you know him. He's a psychiatrist at Ramban Hospital. Uh -huh. And he knows you very, I mean, he knows of you. And he admires you a great deal, really. Thank you. So, because as you well know, you are so uh, have articulated these thoughts for so many years. There is a significant aspect of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that very few people think been a pay attention to, and that is the psychological aspect of this conflict has been going on now for nearly well, you can say, a hundred years since 1917. <laughs> but before we go into that, uh, let's talk a little bit about what happened recently. With okay. Netanyahu's visit to, to Washington, and specifically the <laughs> the, com the press so-called press conference between him and President, I still say cannot say President Trump. I don't mind if this is on, <laughs> on record. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, between no. Netanyahu and <laughs> President uh, Trump. No, no self-censorship, right. No, no censorship. I'm not politi a politician. I can say what I want. <laughs> Fortunately. So, so, so uh, let me start with your take on what happened. What do you think? It's, uh, how, how I feel that that the visit and the consequence of the visit, for, wh for whatever it's worth, made situation worse rather than better. No, it's absolutely. Take. There is a way to look at this uh, from perspective. And uh, since 2000, if we take longer, uh, Israeli society and Israeli leaders, with one exception of Walmer, the society is moving back to the conflict. And there is, on the one hand, escalation of the conflict. And with the escalation of the conflict comes really change in the ways that the leadership approaches the conflict. We are back probably to the 60s, 70s in the way. And it uh, really accelerated dramatically with the new government of uh, Netanyahu, which is a coalition of extreme right and right. And it's not even really, a, I, I think that it's of extreme right. Because when you look into Likud, you find that there's really substantial number of leaders from Likud, ministers and case, really don't have very different opinions from uh, Bennett or what we call... Uh, this is true, I mean, yeah. It's the same, yeah. they're the same. In fact, very recently they had a full page yeah. in Haaretz, yeah. if you saw many ministers... <clears throat> key uh, players in the Knesset saying that we are urging annexation of the uh, West Bank. Well, outright, yeah, outright. I mean, uh, not just Bennett, Bennett, of course. But you know what is puzzling about this, and what, something I've been talking about, talk, you know, hashing it time and again, is what 
Netanyahu says publicly and what Netanyahu, in fact, is doing on the ground with the support, of course, of his government. That is, I have taken the position all along that Netanyahu, as prime minister, as individual, he is not and will never commit himself to two-state solution. I mean, he's against it, and he's doing everything he can, notwithstanding his public announcement and public narrative. He's doing everything he can. If one, all one has to look is what's going on in the West Bank to come to the conclusion that Netanyahu is moving in the direction of settling in the West Bank at least one million people, one million Israelis, and create irreversible facts on the ground. And that is, for him, that is what is eventually will uh, restore or will allow Israel to gain all of what is termed the land of Israel, the biblical land of Israel. Do you see it the same way? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we have a complete agreement. In fact, I will tell you, it, uh, I even can tell you that it's based not only on feeling, but on research. Uh, one of my students studied speeches of Netanyahu uh, with his entrance to politics until uh, very recently. And what we find, we find a complete consistency. So uh, the study, particular research, compared Olmert, who changed his view, and him did not, because they come really from a very similar background, yes. and it was the same age, so more or less at the same time. So it was very interesting to see how Olmert, you can find cues that he is changing, and, and he did not. He changed on two issues. Uh, one is the story of accepting Oslo Agreement in 96, uh, March, and second one is a two-state solution. And uh, looking deep into the story, uh, as I did, I will tell you in a second, is that there is no, I think, complete dogmatic leader. So leaders, when they are there, as we say, from there you see something that you don't see from outside, you cannot, you cannot ignore completely the geopolitical situation, pressures, uh, opinions of uh, key leaders in the world, you cannot. So in both cases that he changed his opinion, were under pressure. In uh, accepting Oslo, he accepted it because he saw the polls that I saw, and uh, the poll showed that in order to be elected, he has to accept uh, Oslo. So he accepted Oslo in order to be elected, and as we know, the results well, but, but subsequently, uh, oh. everything to undermine Oslo. Exactly. That's and even, I'll point. tell yes. you more, yeah. there is this a particular story. The story is of 208. He visited the settler family, and uh, he asked, they asked him, why did you accept uh, Oslo? And he said, okay, I will answer, but uh, shut up all the cameras and all the... And uh, they did it, supposedly, but they did not. And one camera was rolling, video was rolling, and he said very openly that I did all in order to stop and harm Oslo, and I had to accept it. And this is a story. So I, he was telling the truth. Yeah. Was telling the truth. And the same was with the two-state solution well, by yes, Iran. Yes. Under pressure yeah, of yeah. Obama and obviously yeah, previously, yeah. he accepted, and then again, he retracted just before the election in 2015. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he, when he was asked, yeah, I'm sure you remember, he said, when someone asked him, would they be in Palestine, he said, under your watch, he said, no, indeed not. So I have never thought for a moment. I want to tell you that I had an encounter with him going back uh, 20 years, 1990. Seven. Mm -hmm. uh, the Syrian at the time were interested in actually entering into serious negotiation about the Golanite. When finally I saw him and I talked to him about it, he did forget it. Just by, this was his gesture. <laughs> we are not interested. We are interested. They're going back now. To, this is one year after he became prime minister. Right. This this is a this is a a, a man who has, uh, you know, grew up on his father's lap, so to speak, uh, neo-Zionist, uh, hardcore Zionist. Absolutely. And he is not going to change his mind. And I think as long as he is in power, 
no prospect of a Palestinian state under any circumstances. His father did not uh, view even, didn't support the peace in Egypt. Yeah. So he, he was, he died. Most of the extreme person in the Israeli politics, also he was not in politics, and yeah. he uh, reared up his child uh, in a very authoritative way, and the child accepted, though he says, the son, yeah. the views. And as we said, you know, just before, you know, it's a fact, it's not really evaluation. So he did not change anything with regard to the view Israel uh, or the Eretz Israel as an exclusive homeland of well, Jews, Jews yeah. and only of Jews. Yeah. Uh, he sees Jews as victims, eternal victims, as his father, yes. so he did his studies. He glorifies Jews all the time, the most moral army uh -huh. in the world, the most moral nation in the world, and, uh, and, and delegitimizes Palestinians. In fact, some of the uh, labels that he gave them just recently are outraging. He calls them beasts. Yeah, I mean... I mean can it, you imagine? It, I mean, just yeah. reading his, yeah, yeah. you can see where he's going. Yeah. Compare his speeches now to the speeches of Rabin after 1993. It's a difference of light. Absolutely different. He's a hypocrite. I mean, say obviously, uh, he says something one day, next day he changes his mind. He doesn't think, I mean, when you just mentioned his, his, the way he referred to the Palestinians and the way he said, we are the most ethical people, our army is the most ethical, when in fact the army itself is subjugating the Palestinian day in and day out, uh, with all the various measures they're taking to, in the name of national security, I think it's awful. I think that says, that's a, you know, portray, not just the Israelis, but portray the Jews. Because some, somewhere along, you know, this what Israel does impact on, on, Jew, on world Jewry, how it's been seen by the non-Jews. Right. I and agree. if there is if there's a rise of anti-Semitism, be that in the United States or in Europe or elsewhere, I think uh, I am absolutely convinced that much of it is ignited uh, because of the Israeli policies in the West Bank, because of the occupation. So they associate Jews to the action of what the Israelis are doing. And so there is, not that anti-Semitism is a new phenomenon, it's always been there, but there is rise in the last several years, specifically in Europe, and now even here in the United States, it is muchly, much, much of it is attributed to the fact that Israel has been occupying uh, other people for 50 years now, 50 years. So it's directly contributing to the anti-Semitism throughout the world. But, you know, there was this press conference. I would like to, to get your take on it. American position was all along under Bush going to Clinton and then Obama. The two-state solution was the heart, the heart of a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then comes Mr. Trump. And he says, well, one state, two state, I like it. Whatever they like it, I like it. Now let's take it from there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it could be a joke. It is a joke. But since uh, it was said by the President of the United States, it's a very sad uh, statement, which means that uh, the President does not understand well the situation because saying whatever you want is something that he uh, did not invest enough effort to learn and to learn to say something about conflict you have to have some kind of knowledge in order to, to say something meaningful saying something that doesn't have any meaning but opens uh, maybe you know nobody knows even whether it was an accident whether it was saying or he actually wanted to say that United States retreats from a very traditional position that only two-state solution is a solution that is acceptable. But nobody knows really even to answer whether it was a joke, serious considerations, and opening a new way, or just, you know, he said, because it, it came to his mind, you know, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, but, but this is, he know, he's now notoriously known 
to have said something and tomorrow he changes his mind. If he was really, if he gave it anything, any thought whatsoever, he probably would say, let me say this and if they see how it works and, and after tomorrow, a week later, I can change my mind. That I see him as a person who is totally, I mean, he's wishy-washy, obviously. I don't, he's not a principal. He's not a principal man. I don't think, and I agree with you, he, he did not really study the, intri the intricacies, the complexity of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to understand that this is not just a question of one state, two state. There are massive implications to whichever way Absolutely. one goes. And he demonstrated complete ignorance. Total about, ignorance. You know, take, let's take just two aspects of one state. One is that look at the world and it's extremely hard to find two ethnic groups that live together in peace, especially after such a bloody struggle. Right. You know, look what is going on in Rwanda, Tutsi and Hutu, what is going on in uh, Sri Lanka with Sangalis and Tamils. No, India, wherever you go, Kenya, wherever you touch, you see the same problem. So one question is that how two ethnic groups that were in such a bloody conflict can live together. Look what is going on in Belgium even, where it's so difficult. Second problem is that he didn't realize, didn't uh, refer, it's a problem of the nature. So what is going to happen? Will they get full rights? Or he, what he meant, it will be that it will be apartheid state because it also can be one state. And both solution, I say it's almost like Sophie choice <laughs> Both of yeah. them terrible yeah. because uh, yeah. there is only one solution that can somewhat solve the problem is to state solution. Maybe it's not the best one, but clearly it's the least uh, worst one, really, because the other one is will put the situation uh, in such a way that Jews will have to decide whether they want to be apartheid state or they want to. Uh, yeah. lose their Jewish nature. So, I mean, to throw a word without any meaning or thinking about the implication is terrible. Yeah. So the powerful leader of the uh, empire of the present world is uh, talking without any meaning. Yeah, you know, uh, in, in today's article, actually, I, mean, I was talking about this. The two-state solution uh, probably is the lesser of all evils. But the truth of the matter is when we look at other possible solutions, half a dozen, uh, some Israelis would like to see the Palestinian part of the West Bank join Jordan and create... So they will vote. We live in the West Bank, but yeah. we'll vote we'll, 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 Can we'll, you imagine? We'll Jordan. Israelis would like to see Hamas, uh, Gaza to be a Palestinian state, while they take much of the West Bank and leave the Palestinian live in cantons and Bethlehem, Hezbollah, that's another solution, so to speak. Island, you know what kind of idea has? <laughs> the general major in Israel. So they will get Sinai. Yeah, give them Sinai. Give them Sinai. But setting all of this aside, you know, the, not only that there is a lack of understanding, what I think might, might happen is that he made the situation considerably worse. He basically gave Netanyahu a sort of a green light. Right. Absolutely. Go ahead and do just don't don't scream too much about settlement. Do it quietly, basically. Keep expanding, but Absolutely. do it do it quietly. And uh, you have pretty much a free hand. One state, two state, it doesn't matter. You you can handle it and we're gonna watch your back. That's the impression I got. Do you share the share the same impression? Right. You know, except that I am very curious uh, what did say the head of the CIA uh, when he was in Ramallah very recently, you know, what was really kind of balancing the story? Uh, I don't know what was said. Well, I can tell you. I can you tell know you what? what? No, I can tell you. I spoke day before yesterday to, I don't want to mention his name, in Ramallah, um, uh, Jordanian, who, 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 he's in the know. And he has a good knowledge of what happened until this meeting. And my understanding what he said, Abbas was totally and completely unequivocal. Two state is the only way. There, will, there is no other way. Hamas and uh, the Palestinian Authority are one people. 
Hamas is not going to have its own country, its own state. It's going to be Gaza as well as the West Bank and single Palestinian state. And if there is an agreement on that, that Hamas will come along and will support that. Notwithstanding what they are saying publicly or otherwise, they are not simply not prepared to surrender uh -huh. to the Israeli wins. That was the message it was conveyed to the, to the guy. To the guy, he, yes. But yes. what did he say to them? Do you, do you know? He basically listened. Just listened? He just, just listened. Listen. Uh -huh. He just listened and apparently conveyed that to the president. And uh, well, we saw what came out of that, you know, probably for this reason, and I think it's a, it is a clear connection here. For this reason, he's saying one state, two state, because the Palestinians want two state. Israelis would like to gobble up the whole West Bank. So you can have it this way, you can have it this way, which is consistent. <laughs> this is really, this is the biggest joke. <laughs> consistent with all of these behind-the-scenes negotiations. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, but uh, we, you know, it is, as, as you said, a green light. And it's very important because uh, the pressure on Netanyahu uh, is tremendous, which is really, in certain way, kind of, I would say, uh, almost... Uh, unpredictable uh, situation, so Netanyahu uh, became in this uh, construction kind of center person, you know, relatively, everything is relatively to the uh, political map. Yeah. Because yeah. What, what happened, he is probably, I believe even, more moderate than Levine, than Ikunis, yeah, Katz, obviously, that because of the, let's say, because of the responsibility. You know, not because, ideologically, maybe if he would have a free hand, he would go with them. But he understands that the world is more complex. He meets with leaders personally, hears, in spite of the fact that some of their relationships are very good, like India, China, but he hears a voice. No and question. therefore, he has to keep somewhat balance the situation. Yeah, just they so don't have responsibility yeah, yeah. and they can push. So Bennett can say whatever he wants. He's not a prime minister. Exactly. I mean, he, that's what he said for public consumption. Basically, like I said, uh, I've been saying time and again, you know, to appease the United States, he keeps talking about two-state solution when in fact he's doing everything on the ground to kill the prospect of a two-state solution. I want to ask you, there was a major article published only recently in Haaretz, where actually former Secretary of State John Kerry told the story that he worked out on a comprehensive peace plan that will include the Arab state, more or less on the basis of the Arab Peace Initiative with some adjustment in terms of lens one. And he got the President of Egypt involved, Sisi, as well as Jordan King, King yeah. Abdullah, and Netanyahu himself, and they met in Aqaba in the middle of 2016. And they hashed this whole plan, and apparently at that time, Netanyahu said, it looks good, and I go back, discuss it with my cabinet, to take it from there, but of course he changed his mind two days later. And his excuse was, if I accept anything like this, my government will collapse. Right, right. And my government will collapse. And not just because you know, you, you are lived there, and you know the reality better than I do, I do in, in Israel itself. And here you have a, a, a person like Netanyahu saying, my government will collapse, as if, if he wanted to form a different government who would support a two-state solution, he couldn't. You know he can, right? If you look at the parties, other parties, if, he, if they were to join him, Zionist camp, uh, Yesh Atid, uh, oh, yeah, Meretz, and... But he had to be... And you see, uh, I, you know, I don't know him personally, and I usually <laughs> have difficulty when I see, uh, as political psychologist, someone tries to analyze his personality, because it's very complicated. But people do say uh, that he has... Difficulty to be uh, intentioned, that he doesn't like to gamble and uh, doesn't want to take risks. Because in principle, he could, I believe, be De Gaulle or even Ariel Sharon, 
who really shook up all the cards and began something new. You are right. He could come to Yeshatid, he could come to Labour. In fact, he was talking with Labour, oh, yeah, but without yeah. any well, real intention. Yeah. He has his constituency, and, and it really, its constituency is stable. Uh, they support his opinion to some extent here and there, and he feels comfortable with this coalition. Also, on personal level, he hates really very much Bennett, Bennett, and they have a long <laughs> personal history. Yeah. Well, but yeah. politics is politics, and probably ideologically he's close to him, yeah. uh, and the games are really... Well, but he sees Bennett as a competitor to him. He I mean. Right, just, but on yeah. personal level, yeah. it's yeah, not ideological person, competitor. Yeah. Yeah, personal it's level. really yes. on personal yeah. level. I know, absolutely. And, absolutely, and, and yeah. the guy has a personal problem because if you see as a prime minister, which probably you should hear different opinions. People, you know, two observations are very clear. One, that he always surrounds himself with the essayers. Always with the essayers. Yes, yes, yes. He doesn't bring anyone that has opinion. In fact, it's very interesting, you know, just a digression, that Trump brought the general master who supposedly is very independent. So Netanyahu, here we have one different. Netanyahu would never bring someone like him to his oh, court. No, no, and second, yeah. that he changes them, as we say, like underwear, very often. So you see people that enter, and then for various reasons they have a quarrel, including Shaked, including oh, Bennett, yeah. oh, that yes, work, yeah. and many other, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. because he, there are two problems, he needs complete loyalty, loyalty and there is yes. another problem, yeah. he needs the approval of his wife. His approval <laughs> of his wife, and there's a third one, his lust and love for power. He does not want to relinquish power. I want to raise the other question, you know. Yeah. We know that the Israeli opposition parties have really been unable to organize themselves effectively. That is, yes, they all stand for a two-state solution. I think the Zionist camp does, uh, Yesh Atid does, certainly merits, and even Kulano will go along with that, which is a part of the current coalition government. So they are not organized. That's one problem. The other problem is the movement, it seems to me, of increasing number of Israelis from left to center and center to the right. Do you see that a trend continuing? Because I feel this way, if the left and the center is not organized and they have never produced a real practical agenda, how to change the dynamic of the conflict and to, to, to at least make an effort to end it, while at the same time, there's increasing number of settlers going to the West Bank, the Israeli public is becoming more and more complacent, right? and many are moving more and more toward the, the right of center. So if this are the, the reality, A, I want to ask you, that's how I see it, where this is going to lead to? Okay, you, you, okay, you are touching on, on a wider point, you know, moving from the particular situation that we were discussing. Uh, Israeli society, beginning with 2000, is moving in this direction. So we have two processes. One is escalation of the conflict, yes. except in the very short period of uh, Olmer. And second, what we have is uh, a strengthening institutionalization yes. of the system, of the rightist system. Right. So it means the following, that the system becomes less tolerant, the system becomes more indoctrinating, the system becomes more closed. So what happens is that people who live in Israel and, and kind of, I, I see it as kind of entering into pipeline in certain way, metaphorically, as they are born, are really reared up in a particular climate that is close-minded. It begins in kindergarten, it continues in the school, yes, they yes, go later yes, yes, to the yes. army. It is related to type of news that they get 
from uh, 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 newspapers. You have to understand, for example, the really tremendous power of Israel Ayom, so it can be found everywhere. You know, you are sitting, uh, waiting for a doctor, sitting in a bank, you get the paper for free, and you read the news, thinking that those are the news. People are not really uh, complex thinking or are not uh, uh, well sophisticated, and they accept. And, and this is the way that the indoctrination works. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, therefore, yeah. what is going on, you are right. People are moving more and more towards the right because of the new generation. There is a, by the way, there is a big difference between the older generation uh, and the younger generation. The older generation is more hawkish, very much. Yeah. Then you have in the society increase of religious people. Yes. There is a yeah. very strong yeah. uh, correlation between the religiosity and, and uh, uh, hawkishness. Yeah. So what you see and is the settlement true. movement to a great extent. So, but then there is another yeah. point, yeah. and this is very important. Yeah. The point is that in the struggle within society over the narrative, because there is a struggle between Palestinians and Israelis over narrative, but there is also a struggle within the society. The government tries to tell the story what is going on, and there is alternative story, let's say, by peace camp. Netanyahu is extremely successful in delegitimizing the left yeah. as a uh, yes. group yeah. and yeah. their opinion, yeah. to the extent that, look what is going on, that people so-called in the center or in the left, like the Labour Party, are escaping, like from the fire, not to be labeled as leftist. So Labour Party changed uh, its uh, name and calls itself the Zionist Zion, camp. Yes, yes. And yeah. he, the leader, yeah. and the leaders, yeah. some of the leaders, are talking very similar in the same way as Netanyahu, and also is doing the same. Uh, yes, exactly. yes, so yes, what happened, yes. the alternative opinion became uh, not legitimate. So therefore it's extremely difficult to build a system that will uh, struggle with a hegemonic narrative, which didn't happen during, for example, Rabin time. Exactly. Because in during the Rabin time, there was an alternative narrative, which was headed uh, or perpetually propagated by uh, Likud, and they were not afraid, you know, they were standing in the street. So my concern, uh, yes, yeah. is exactly, and I, I, exactly, I, I fully agree with you, fully. My concern now, if this trend is to continue, my feeling is that it is entirely possible that we can reach a tipping point mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where it will become almost impossible to restore conditions that could be, that would be conducive to a resumption of serious peace talk that could eventually produce a two-state. That is, I think there's a point in time where if this trend continues, that is, the left or so-called left uh, continue to vacillate and uh, uh, unable to organize itself, uh, and there's continuing movement now toward the center and the and right of center, there's this ongoing indoctrination 24 hours a day by the government, by certain media, what you are seeing now, Israel, and the increasing number of settlers, day in and day out, what you are seeing, all of this trend put together, at a point in time, it will be extremely difficult to stop this trend. They're going to continue to move, and then this may very well, I think, could spell the death, the complete death of the two-state solution. I mean, it's entirely possible unless something dramatic happens in the next two, three, or four years. No, you, are, you are right. You say, so on the assumption that the vision of peace, in your view or whatever, or my view, is supposed to come from within. Because what we have to agree is that obviously there are other vectors playing, like for example what Palestinians will do. They are of not course. passive. They may and what the world will do, yeah. what Europe will do. So we don't know. But if you just focus on Israel, you are right. So at the moment, what you see is really a construction of new Israel. Under the pressure of the uh, extreme right, 
so it's really God uh, a dominant place. In fact, Bennett or settlers, if you want, have a hegemonic uh, standing in the Israeli society vis-a-vis -vis the government, vis-a-vis -vis the institutions that are penetrating into uh, important uh, positions. You know, look at the, for example, the head of police, uh, the head of Shabak, head of Mossad. You know, those are very important positions. Look what is going on in the, uh, uh, let's say, Ministry of Justice, what is going on uh, in Education Ministry. So this is really the trend. The, so yeah, they put yeah, the, yeah. their people, yeah. they take over the institutions of the, of the country. And so at the moment, by the way, you know, it's really, you know, among the Israelis, when we talk, we find only the army as a kind of, uh, especially the high officers are the one that are, you know, really unexpectedly defending the democracy. Take the example just a year ago, uh, the deputy chief of staff had a very shocking statement about Israel that becomes more and more similar uh, to Nazi, uh, Nazism. And it shocked many, yeah, many people, yeah, right? Yeah, I heard that was statement. very, very... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so army, can you imagine always the story with the soldier? The army became really the defender of democracy and moral values. But, but, here is the story. As we know, there is a trend in the army, and uh, people from whatever, once they were coming from Kibbutzim, left and become the officers, pilots, it's stopped. Yeah. So uh, at the moment, in the, the basic training of officers, about 50% of them, 50% yeah. of them are coming from the nationalistic religious yeah. Yeah. sector. Yeah. So already now we have uh, colonels, yeah. we have already brigadiers. Yes. So some people are saying that we have about 10 years of time. And within 10 years, it's very possible that so most itself. of the generals yeah. Yeah. will be coming from the religious yeah. Yeah. sector then, and yeah. it will yeah. be end of the story. Then comes the question, and even now I think it's becoming extremely difficult. Suppose there's going to be a need to evacuate some of the settlers. Who's going to do that? I don't think the army will be able to do that. There's a point in time where the army itself is not going to be able to do something which is against its own principle. If this trend continues. And that's, I think that's the biggest danger. No, it's true. So we are, exactly, we are approaching the tipping point. So Amona still they did, they did with the disengagement, but there is one major difference. Amona was what, about 200, 300. In order to resolve the conflict at the moment, according to the lines of Geneva, Olmert, whatever, there is need to move about between 80,000 to 100,000 people from the but, inland. Yeah, from the about settlements that are scattered all over. So yeah. I hear sometimes the statement so, so, you know, among Israelis, kind of joke, that still is not born a prime minister that will be able to move 100,000. That it's, <laughs> you know, something impossible. It's impossible, even 100, not to speak of more than that. You know, the, the, other, the other point of uh, concern, that is, if this is the trend, again, this is how I envision, if this were to continue, you know, we're talking before, you know, can we speculate? Uh, we, we can speculate based on what we know today, based on, on the facts on the ground. So we, I speculate that given the conditions in Israel today and given the, how things are evolving and developing, let's leave the Palestinians with very limited options. That is, I don't believe they will sit still for another 5, 10, 15, 20 years and hope that the international community is going to come and save the day. I don't believe that the United States at any point in time is going to put the kind of pressure on Israel to change its ways, with or without Netanyahu. In terms of direct pressure, that coercion, uh, not to speak of other m coercive methods. The European may be more, more inclined or more, will be more prepared to do that, but even then it's going to be very, very difficult for them 
given the history of the Jews in Europe and all of that, to put that kind of pressure on Israel to make these most painful concessions that need to be made in order to reach an agreement. So that's going to leave us with the Palestinians and the Arab world. What the Palestinians are going to do? Will they be sitting another 10, 15, 20 years and do nothing? I have, uh, my feeling is it's a question of time whether there's going to be massive, massive explosion of sorts. Way, way bigger than the Second Intifada, if things don't change. Do you share this with you? Yeah, you know, uh, from, uh, yeah, I share, you know, I don't know when, but uh, looking again, history, you know, look at the history of Poland, Hungary, Chechen, uh, Czech, whatever. Eventually, uh, occupied nations uh, rose and, uh, and rebelled, all of them. Poles rebelled three times and uh, Hungarians rebelled. It takes time, you know, obviously, Irish uh, had a number Correct. of rebellions, yeah. Yeah. so uh, it will. It takes time, sometimes longer, uh, you know, because each rebellion, the last one was very costly to Palestinians, uh, I think it's about 25 Yeah, but at, at, the point, at the one point, you know, when they have nothing left to lose. Right. I right. mean, this is where they, I think, you know, they paid a great deal, the, the very costly to Second Intifada in, in the year 2000. And that was also maybe was a turning point for the Israelis in a major way, psychologically speaking, specifically. Mm -hmm. Look what we've done and look what we got in the return. So so having having said that, the Palestinians today, as their condition is getting worse by the day, they are will be prepared to make similar or even greater sacrifices in order to achieve something. So what is going to stop them actually? when they have very little left to lose. That's how I see it. And this is a question of when they will galvanize their forces. And it doesn't have to be even organized, I don't think. Sometimes it could be sparked somewhere, and then it's going to assume its own momentum. It's true, like it happened in 87, yeah. 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 the accidents yeah. of the uh, seven uh, Palestinians in Gaza. So eventually uh, evokes it. It's true, it's true. It's, I, I, I think that those events are unexpected. Usually, uh, as we said, you know, certain, uh, the event of, nobody thought that in 87 there would be a priving, yeah. people thought. Yeah. So it can happen. And uh, as we, we agree, that if, when you look at the rules of history, this is what happens. Yeah. So it happened everywhere. It will happen probably, yeah. uh, probably here. Now I, you know, it's interesting that you say United States will oppress, but you know, when I look on the pressure of United States, many of the cases, it comes very late. We have to remember that, let's say, boycott of South Africa, in the United States entered into boycott only in '89. Yeah. Only '89, when Europe was boycotting for a long period of time. So returning now to the point of what you said, I think, you know, this is again assumption, ways of the world is moving, the importance of human rights, etc. Talking with a lot of people in the parliaments, etc. I think that uh, uh, slowly, slowly, the uh, feeling of guilt is dissipating. And I think that there is a very strong uh, roots in Europe against uh, that object to the continuation of the occupation no, I agree. from the moral point yeah. of view. Yeah, in Europe, and, and yes. It's, and yeah. it's really stronger in the civil society than in the government. Very true. So in what Europe, happened? Yeah. I so at the moment I, I just had a tour, met with officials in Germany, other. And they kind of, uh, uh, from the formal point of view, they will not change dramatically. But I am asking myself, as it happened it is with regard to South Africa, so that people will become more yeah. involved, yeah. and it will become also internal issue, as it happens sometimes. So it are not only uh, internal issues, but some of the external issues become internal issues. Yeah. So I predict that uh, within reasonable time there will be pressure 
and I, I and think we would call There will be pressure. I'm not, I don't know if it's going to be similar to what happened against uh, South Africa. It probably. It's going to be somewhat, I mean, different because, again, uh, the, the, the black in South Africa did not go through a Holocaust, so to speak. There is that sense of guilt, and I agree with you, that sense of guilt is dis dissipating in Europe as well here in the United States. That is, for how many generations we're supposed to feel guilty? Israel is a powerful country, it's a nuclear power, it is economically is a, is a thriving state. And it's uh, perpetrating. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and why, should, why should we now feel guilty when in fact Israel has become the, the perpetrator the occupier of other lands and other people. That is beginning to resonate. I see it in Europe. Every time I go to Brussels, Paris, I see it very clearly. It's resonating and they are against what Israel is doing and they are expressing that. And I agree with you, the government, not as much as the government, but the civil society, they've had it. They're saying we've had it with, with the situation. The main concern also they have is that they see the conflict in Israel as um, as uh, one that precipitates instability and violence throughout the region. So it's not limited to Israelis and Palestinians. Right, but that's a very important point. Yeah, but as long as the Palestinians are unhappy and their situation is dire, that is also creating frenzy and, and uh, violence and uh, other places in the Middle East. And so from the European perspective, suddenly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a prerequisite that is from, because they're suffering from radicalization. They're suffering from violence. They're suffering, that they're on the forefront, so to speak. And so I think the pressure is going to come more from Europe to start with. But that's maybe necessary for the United States eventually to, to wake up and say enough is enough, not for the purpose of just pressuring Israel, but I think for the purpose of saving Israel from itself. <laughs> you know, here we are touching exactly, you know, what I'm trying to do with CISO. So I believe that there is one more vector, and uh, those are Jews around the world. Yes. Uh, traditionally, Jews around the world, in terms of values, they are more liberal than many, exactly. Exactly. many other communities, yes. white communities. They were at the front in uh, South Africa. Uh, they were in the front here with civil rights, and, and, and they have, this is, in the United States, this is the most liberal community. They know what human rights are about. And I believe that they worry. They worry because they oh, see they two problems. Oh, yes. You know, because we are focusing on the conflict, but we did not talk, and we should mention that the conflict by its nature, affects very much not only the occupied society, but also the occupying society. Oh, no question. Right. I, I it mean, is yeah. by its nature. Yeah. So yeah. what happened is that the occupying society necessarily is deteriorating in terms of democracy. It, there are other costs. Because if you want, you know, take just, if you want to block an alternative information, or you want to struggle with a narrative, you have to exercise some kind of measures that are anti-democratic by nature. Oh, yes, no because question. democracy no by yeah. its nature yeah. has to be yeah. pluralistic and it has to allow free flow of information. Yeah. Israel yeah. does not right. allow right. free flow of information because doesn't want that an alternative information will penetrate into the public. So they see and they worry what is going on. And this is what CISO, CISO is an organization called Save Israel Exactly From Itself, stops yeah. occupation yeah. Yeah. because of the tourism, yeah. because of the costs that the Israeli society is paying. And of course, the Palestinians are paying with, as they pay a tremendous price. And only uh, ending the occupation will save Israel from the cancer that already is extending yeah. in the society. The only problem, I agree, I agree 100%. Going, I just want to make a note about one other final point on this American Jews or Jews around the world, specifically in the large communities like in Britain and France, 
so far they have not been as a critical, at least publicly, about Israel. And when there is serious discussion and conflict, they do it so by usually quietly. Uh, they talk between them, they go to Israel, they talk to the government. But I, I think there's going to be a time when the Jews, specifically in the United States, will no longer want to continue to defend themselves and defend Israel because they're getting tired. They're getting very tired of this. They are, now they're becoming always on the defensive, trying to justify or explain, to say the least, what the misdeed that Israel is doing day in and day out. I think there's a, also there's a point in time where the Jews around the world, and perhaps this is a, probably the major force, the major force that could affect a change eventually in the Israeli policies, if the Jews around the world wake up and say, we cannot allow this country that we've been waiting for so many uh, exactly, centuries exactly, exactly. To, uh, to, to, to destroy itself, and with that, that will have a massive impact on world Jewry, on the very existence of the Jews around the world. You're right, you're touching. It because the existence of Israel is a way, one way or another, it impinges on a very core of social identity of Jews. Exactly. So exactly. if, you know, I am a Jew and I am ashamed of something that is supposed to represent me, and, and, and the point is that we already mentioned, and I wanted just to emphasize, Netanyahu is one of the first, I mean, of the uh, uh, prime minister that says that Israel represents, he represents, yeah, he represents, represents the, jury. the world jury. In fact, yeah, there is, yeah. when I, he said the statement, when I came to visit uh, President uh, Holland, I not only came as Israeli, but I came representing yeah, yeah. all the Jews yeah, around the world. Well. Well, he should know that he does not represent me. <laughs> and he should know that he does not represent American Jews. Not many. No, uh, some here. Uh, and and uh, time has come for him to wake up. I, I honestly must, I would like to end this session in particular saying one thing, that uh, I, I want to air it regardless. I think the most dangerous man today to Israel's future is Netanyahu himself. And that is very, very sad thing to say. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.